Heavenly Father, we have been invited through the sounds of music to adore you, to worship you, to lift up your name and exalt you. And we thank you that we have the freedom to do so and that you give us the opportunity, the ability to worship you through your creation, through your specific revelation of the Bible and the Lord Jesus Christ. And today, Lord, may we all have a heart to seek your glory and your will. And Lord, we thank you for your word in our own language. We praise you, Lord, that you have brought us here together this morning. And we thank you for the freedom we enjoy to do so. I thank you for each one here. Thank you for our guests who are with us today. And we pray that each one of us would grow in the knowledge and the measure of the Lord Jesus Christ because of this encounter with you, uh, the Holy One, and with your word and with one another. We thank you for our children. We thank you for those who care for our children in uh, the nursery as well as junior church. And Lord, we thank you for them. And we praise you for your faithfulness through this past week, even though maybe uh, some of us have faced difficulties and problems uh, which seem insurmountable. We know that you are still God and that you're working all things out for your glory and for the good of your people. And we pray that we would just keep our eyes fixed upon you, the author and finisher of our faith. Thank you for uh, those who serve you around the world, some of our missionaries. We think of uh, the Ovenels in uh, Benin in Africa, West Africa. Pray for their protection, for endurance, perseverance as they serve there. Uh, we think of uh, the Boers who are preparing to go into China. We pray for them for encouragement and provision. And for many others, Lord, for the Mayhews that have just returned from China, we thank you for them. Pray for their ongoing wisdom as they continue to help believers there in Macau and Hong Kong and interior there for the cause of the, in the glory of Jesus Christ. And we praise you, Lord, that we can shout joyfully to the Lord. We can serve you with gladness. We can come before you with joyful singing. Because, Lord, for believers in Jesus Christ, the bottom line is we know that the Lord himself is God, that he is who the one who has made us and not we ourselves. And we are your people, dear God, and the sheep of your pasture. And thank you for this morning, for your word. We pray that each one of us would be attentive to what you have for us this morning from this psalm. And we thank you and praise you for this opportunity to be together. In Jesus' powerful name I pray, amen and amen. You may be seated. Good morning. Or if you want to stand, you can stand. That's all right, too. I was thinking this week about learning new skills, and hopefully you are a lifelong learner. Uh, that we continue to learn and improve on the skills that uh, we are attracted to and that we have developed and have been trained in. But I was thinking about teaching teenagers to drive. And uh, having had two teenagers uh, who I helped them to learn how to drive, I can say that we all survived. Uh, Our oldest daughter learned to drive in Dallas, Texas, and uh, so she learned in an urban area. And I still remember the day that uh, she took my car and I watched her drive out of the driveway on her first solo trip into the, into the traffic of the metro mess down there. And uh, she's doing very well and she learned what she needed to learn. And then our younger daughter, uh, she learned how to drive in the farmlands of Wisconsin. Uh, so she had to watch out for those black and white cows was the primary thing there. Uh, but with, with our youngest daughter, uh, the car we were using to teach her how to drive was a manual transmission. And so you had to manually shift the gears at the right time. And uh, so learning that skill, think about those of you who are drivers or those of you who aspire to drive an automobile. Think about all the things you have to do to drive a car. 
how to start it. You check your left mirror, your right mirror, your rearview mirror inside. And if you have a, a manual transmission, you've got a clutch pedal for your left foot, and you've got a brake pedal and an accelerator for your right foot, and uh, the transmission shift and all of that stuff that really you need to learn how to do. And so when our youngest daughter was learning how to drive the manual transmission, it was, it was difficult for her to get that clutch just right, you know. And so both of us were wearing uh, whiplash collars, you know. But she did well. And uh, I wondered, I was thinking about what was the whole purpose of that. And uh, the purpose in philosophy is called the telos, T-E-L-O-S. Uh, there's a whole... Uh, realm of study called teleology, which is the study of the purpose or study of the whole aim of life. And I was thinking, okay, the telos for my two daughters was to make sure they were competent, safe, skillful drivers. And that was the end game with that whole training regimen. And uh, and thankfully, uh, to my knowledge, they're safe, competent, skillful drivers. A few deer have given their lives along the way. But uh, uh, we uh, are successful in that, in that telos, that aim, and that, uh, the knowledge of the skill set. And I was thinking in retrospect to that, that uh, one day last week, I recognized that I was deep in thought about something. I don't even remember now what it was, but I remember leaving this parking lot from our offices over here. And the next thing I knew, I was driving, pulling into my carport. And I don't really remember anything in between. I don't think, did I hit anybody? Did I hit any of you guys? I hope not. But you know what it is? That's called muscle memory and the skill set that's so ingrained. It's a habit. And that's the good thing about habits is that you can do stuff without really thinking about it. You know, and there's this aspect where you continue to breathe and you don't even have to think about it. Your body, just, you just do it. You don't have to even learn that skill. You started from birth with that skill. Uh, but there is this aspect where we learn habits. I'm reading a book now by James K.A. Smith called You Are What You Love. You Are What You Love. And he talks about the fact that we are more than just intellectual beings. Now, typically, we approach uh, learning as a totally cognitive exercise, don't we? And he says we're more than just brains on sticks, that we are emotional beings. We have physical beings, and uh, there's a whole aspect of life and how we learn. And so each person has a little bit different learning style, but yet we're all moving towards a goal, an aim, a telos, if you will, that whether we recognize it or not. And so I just wanted to illustrate this from Scripture. If you take your Bibles, your copy of Scripture, and find Genesis 1.1, Genesis 1.1, And put your finger right there. I've done this before, so some of you are familiar with this little exercise. And then you go over a few pages to Genesis 12, or the end of, excuse me, the end of, uh, let me find where I'm at here. There we go. Uh, The end of chapter 11. So if I'll hold my Bible up here. This is Genesis 1-1 through the end of Genesis chapter 11. These few pages, I think in my copy of Scripture, it's like 14 pages. And then this, from chapter 12 to the beginning of the New Testament, you can see in your own Bible how much weight is put in this other part of the rest of the Old Testament. 
Uh, I just want to emphasize that in these few pages here, there's as much chronological history as in the rest of this. Okay? There's as much time in the 14 pages that goes by that there are in all these other pages here in the Old Testament. So it tells you something about what God is emphasizing in Scripture. In the first few pages, Genesis 1 through 11, chapter 1 through 11, in fact, I'll give you a very easy memory aid to remember the content of Genesis 1 through 11. The fall, the flood, and the flop. Okay, repeat after me. The fall, the flood, and the flop. Okay, the fall is the fall of man and the sin. Genesis 3, the flood, and chapter 7 through 9. Of course, Noah comes along and God rescues Noah and his family through the ark. And then uh, the flop, which is the Tower of Babel in chapter 11. And that's the easy way to remember this first massive chronological time span in chapters 1 through 11. But then the rest of the Old Testament is about the nation Israel, isn't it? Beginning in Genesis chapter 12, God's chosen people, Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, land, seed, and blessing. And God goes on to define that through this time. And there are what's called highways of prophecy throughout Scripture, beginning in Deuteronomy chapter 28, where basically he tells the people of Israel, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will discipline you. And we see that throughout this big fat portion of our Bibles in the history of Israel. Of course, uh, that is just uh, what I'm trying to illustrate here is the telos, that there is an aim. God has an aim. There is a linear argument throughout history. We are not in an endless circle, but there is a linear argument, and I recognize postmoderns don't like that thought, this idea that there's a meta-narrative, there is a gigantic story going through about, really, about the Lord Jesus Christ, about worship. And in fact, uh, as we look at Scripture, the overarching purpose of all of history, of all of history, and this makes us different from some other evangelicals who say other things, but I believe in Scripture that the overall purpose of all of history from the creation in Genesis 1-1 where it says God in the beginning, God created. Notice it didn't say God was sitting in his throne room receiving glory and honor from the angels. No, it said in the beginning God created. He was working right from the beginning to the end and consummation of this age and on into eternity future. That overarching telos or purpose is worship, is worship for God's glory and for the good of his people. Now, other slices of evangelicalism say the whole purpose of history is the salvation of people. And yes, that's a part of, that's a slice of the overall purpose that Scripture defines for us as doxological. That's that fancy word for God's glory. All of history, from beginning to end to beginning to eternity future, is for the glory of God. The telos. And so that movement, as I've demonstrated there in chronological time, in historical time, and in, in peoples, in nations, is there is an aim, there is a telos to that name or to that purpose, and as God has shown us here. And today as we come to this psalm, Psalm 127, if you take your copy of God's Word and find Psalm 127, we're in the process of going through the, what is called the Songs of Ascent or the songs of, agree, of degrees, or the psalms put together for the pilgrimage up to Jerusalem as these 
Jewish pilgrims would go from their farmlands and their villages and they would go up to Jerusalem at least three times a year to worship at the Temple Mount at Mount Zion. And in Psalm 127, we see in the ascription at the beginning, the Song of Ascents of Solomon. Now, if you happen to use a Hebrew Bible, uh, you know, where you read from right to left. Let's see, how would that go for you? Right to left. Uh, uh, it would be verse 1. The descriptions in the Hebrew Bible are the first verse of the psalm. Uh, our English Bibles do not do that, but the descriptions are ancient ascriptions to each one of these psalms. So this is ascribed to Solomon. Solomon wrote two psalms that we know about, this one and Psalm 72 is the other one. Now, he may have written more that remained anonymous that we don't know he wrote, but both of these psalms, 72 and 127, are reflective of his writings in the Proverbs and his writings in Ecclesiastes, and we will see that here in a moment. But the telos, the ultimate aim, is worship and glory of God. And when you think of these pilgrims walking up, hiking the pilgrim trails up through the mountains, up to Jerusalem, they were there to worship God. They were fulfilling God's telos, his ultimate aim and purpose for all of creation, all of existence, all of life, that we would worship him. And he talks about that. In fact, the telos, uh, to help you understand it, one Greek philosopher, Aristotle, said the telos is illustrated by the acorn. Uh, we have an oak tree in our front yard, and I noticed these little acorns came off. And uh, Aristotle would say the whole telos or purpose of an acorn is an oak tree. It has a purpose. It has a plan. It is designed to finish that way. And so for you and I, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a telos, and God is revealing it to us here. In this psalm, Psalm 127, it's the eighth of the psalms of ascents that we're going through week by week as we continue on. It goes to Psalm 134, and these psalms were collected, and the pilgrims would sing them probably as they went up or as they took times of rest and stop and refreshment. They would sing them, and their children would learn them by memory because, remember, they didn't all have nice bound Bibles like we do. They had to learn it by oral uh, conveyance. In other words, somebody would sing it, and they would respond, and they would do it enough that they memorized all of the Word of God that way. And so when we think about that, we think of God's telos for us. What does that mean? What does it take to succeed or be faithful in the Christian life? I don't like the word succeed necessarily. It's attached with Christianity because as I read Scripture, I think if we define success, it would simply be called faithfulness in the Christian walk, faithfulness as God is so faithful to us. We asked ourselves this question, what does it take uh, to aim correctly, to be set on the journey, this pilgrim path of worship of God. And uh, we question it about others, about our church. What does it take to succeed in the ordinary affair, affairs of life? We call it our preoccupations. And Psalm 124, it's 127 contains four of these preoccupations in life. He talks here, the psalmist Solomon talks about Okay, what does it mean to build a house? What does it mean to maintain our safety in our communities? Earning a living, raising children. What does all of that mean and what is the difference? Is it just tasks we go through without thinking? Uh, we often turn uh, to human endeavors to answer this question because the validity of human activity is persuasively affirmed in scriptures. Right here in Psalm 127 is a prime example. 
It gives us an eternal perspective. It gives us a perspective about our telos, individually, collectively, as a family, and then as a church family, as well as probably a country in that sense. There's an essential perspective to this. Divine involvement in the routine matters of our lives, of our days, is what makes those activities faithful, or if you like the word, successful in that. Solomon, the writer of this psalm, stresses two points in this psalm that seem not to be related at first. The vanity of human effort in verses 1 and 2 and the value of divine endowment in verses 3 through 5. In fact, some more liberal scholars believe that this was two different psalms that were glued together somehow. But yet it really is all connected in a theme about divine endowment and human activity in the very preoccupations of life. And it begins with two conditional clauses. Notice in verse 1, unless, and then in the middle of verse 1, unless the Lord, unless the Lord. Those are conditional clauses, and some of your versions may have, if the Lord does not, something like that. Uh, But there's this conditional clauses, and he starts out with constructing a house. He starts with an architectural or a building metaphor. In other words, our strategies in life, just in very basic shelter. He says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. They labor in vain who build it. Vanity here, that's through that same Hebrew word is used three times here. We see it in the middle of verse 1, the end of verse 1, and the beginning of verse 2. It is vain, and that's a Echo of Ecclesiastes, of course, the vanity of life. And what does that word mean, this word vain? It means it's empty, futile, useless, or worthless. So without the Lord in all of our strategies, all of our building enterprises, it really ultimately is empty, futile, useless, and worthless. And that is a strong condemnation on how to live life. Without the Lord, all of our labor is in vain. Uh, I was thinking about uh, when I was growing up in Denver, we would go to my grandmother's house, and along the way there was this gigantic iron skeleton of a building. You know, all they had up was the, the iron. There was, it wasn't done, and it sat there. There were weeds in the lot. There were fences around it. It was closed off. And it was like that the whole time I was uh, growing up. And for me, it was a picture of the vanity of planning strategies and then not allowing Uh, God to be involved in it. It was a picture to me, a metaphor of the fact of this very verse. And then when we moved to Dallas, it was during the savings and loan collapse and the controversy. And uh, all along I-35 going east out of Dallas, there were miles and miles of unfinished condominiums and apartment buildings and business buildings. Just the the construction crews walked away and just left everything the way it was. It was that, that way most of the time we were down there and lived there. But constructing a house or our strategies without the Lord, our labor is in vain. Of course, Solomon is not only referring to physical structures, he's referring to spiritual structures. And of course, the metaphor is basically, yeah, the house is just representative. A home is just representative of the family who lives there. It is just representative of that. And so there is one thing about having a healthy family over a beautiful home, isn't there? Because if the family isn't healthy, no matter how fancy the house you live in, it's not going to mean a thing. 
And actually, he's talking about this spiritual growth and building a family, constructing a home, constructing a house, and using the Lord. He's not telling us not to build stuff, and it's not wrong. He's saying that we make sure that the Lord is involved. The second picture we get is guarding a, a, a city in the second part of uh, verse 1 and, and 127. Unless the Lord, there's that second conditional statement, unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. Of course, when Solomon wrote this, cities were surrounded by fortresses and there were sentries at the gates and in the guard towers because they never knew when there would be a threat from invading forces, the enemies of a particular people. So it was a picture of the fact that even if you have wonderful ramparts and you have fortresses and you have sentries all over, unless the Lord is protecting you and the security, then it is in vain. It is empty. It is useless. It is worthless. Without the Lord, all security is in vain. I remember when we lived in Montana and uh, before we moved to Dallas, uh, I'd go fly fishing and fishing with my brother-in-law and always carried a handgun because you never knew when you might run into a bear or something like that. And uh, then I had it at home, and I thought, I'm going to protect my house. I've got this handgun, and I'm going to protect the house. Well, then little kids came along, and I worried about the little kids, and so I put it up in a high shelf, and then I worried some more about it, and I said, well, I better unload that, so I unloaded it. That wasn't good enough. Put a trigger guard on it, and then I realized... You know, I'm going to just sit there and wait and say, bad guy, wait a minute, I've got to get the trigger guard off and put the, the bullets in this thing before we can deal with what you want. And uh, I realized, you know, really my ultimate security is in the Lord Jesus Christ. My ultimate security is in who and what he is. Without the Lord, all of our watch, watchfulness is vain. And it doesn't mean we shouldn't be concerned about a security and do what we can do. We have locks on our doors. We do that kind of thing. And so we take care to take care of our security. But if the Lord is not involved, uh, we don't know exactly how it's going to go. So he moves from construction to security to earning a living in verse 2. You know, work is part of life. It is part of, it, we, we often think of it as the curse of Genesis 3, uh, but it's really a blessing in, in a lot of sense. It's not neutral. It's, not, it's a neutral item. It's not negative or positive. The value or the devaluing of work is how we approach it and our whole attitude about that. Earning a living, look at verse 2 with me. It is vain, there's that word again, empty, uh, futile, useless. It is vain, <clears throat> excuse me, to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. So the psalmist Solomon is making statements here. He's stating that, Constructing a house, guarding a city, earning a living is vain or empty unless God is involved, that he is preeminently involved, that we would not be involved here with anxious toil. The psalmist extends God's sovereignty to man's fragile existence. And uh, even as he did not deprecate the importance of construction, construction of a house or the protection of the city, he does not deprecate the value of hard work. He's not saying that. In fact, we know that later on, in, in Paul writes to the Thessalonians that if a person doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. And so there's this aspect where God values work. There is a blessing in work. In fact, I believe in the new Jerusalem, in the kingdom to come, that all of us will have, if you're a believer in Christ and you find yourself there, we will have work to do. We will be blessed with that. 
And sometimes I know some of your work involves rising early in the morning, going to bed late at night. But the psalmist declares here that uh, it's an inferior way of life if the hard work is only for the purpose of providing daily food and clothing for oneself and one's family. The higher path of life begins in trusting the Lord for one's work. I vividly remember my, when my attitude changed. I worked 11 years in the logging industry in western Montana. And, uh, you know, the, the woods can be a beautiful place to work. I miss a lot of it. But I don't miss the mud and the rain and standing down in a hole, putting a culvert in. I was on road construction most of that time. And one day after I was a new believer in Jesus Christ, I remember that do all things to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians, what is it, 10, 13. And I thought, am I really doing this to the glory of God? And he changed my whole attitude about being down there in the mud and the ice and the snow with uh, these other guys working there day by day. And I realized, you know, it's all in my attitude how I approach it. Is God involved in what I'm doing? And it was a blessing when I recognized that, you know, The Lord gives to his beloved even in their sleep, he promises here at the end of verse 2. E.W. Bullinger, who wrote a famous work, he's a commentator from another time, he wrote the book Figures of Speech Used in the Bible. It's a classic reference tool. But he writes this, God's spiritual blessings are not obtained by incessant labor, rising early or sitting up late, nor by painful and sorrowful effort. It was on his way to God. it It was this way. God gave his wondrous gifts to Solomon when he was sleeping, 1 Kings 3. Remember, Solomon had a dream, and God asked him, what would you give me? He said, I'd like wisdom, and he gave it to Solomon. And he woke up, and he was a new and different person. Even when Adam was asleep, he gave him a bride. To Abram, the everlasting covenant in Genesis chapter 12, or 15. To Jedediah, wisdom, riches, and honor. So the Lord gives even to his beloved in their sleep. That word beloved is a reference probably to Jedediah's nickname. Remember when Jedediah, or excuse me, Solomon's nickname, which was Jedediah, which means beloved in the Lord, 2 Samuel chapter 12. But remember this, that all of God's people are beloved. Romans 1, 7, Colossians 3, 1 Thessalonians 1, and so on. Because we are accepted and blessed in the beloved one, Jesus Christ. I used to listen to J. Vernon McGee. Some of you may still catch him on the radio. Amazing radio ministry. He's been gone to heaven a long time, but they still have his preaching on the radio as far as I know. But when I was a new believer, I would listen to him, and uh, he would always drive me nuts because he was always referring to the listeners as the beloved, the beloved. And I thought, how can you love those people? And then he explained it one day. He said, it's not that I love them, In an emotional sense, it's because I'm relating the fact that Jesus Christ loves them. And that made so much sense. So you are the beloved ones. You are the beloved ones because Christ loves you. The last line of verse 2 is translated and interpreted uh, different ways, but the thrust of it seems clear. You know, sometimes we get tired in God's work whether it's raising families, doing the work in your workplace or school or wherever you find yourself. But we should not get tired of God's word. There's a difference there, God's work. Because the Lord is the one who gives us the strength and gives us the rest we need. 
Ecclesiastes 5 says, The sleep of a laboring man is sweet. A kind of a reflection here out of, ecclesial, or out of Ecclesiastes here. Uh, when we go to bed at night, and I've often said this, to lay our heads down and maybe the day didn't go well, maybe you didn't accomplish what you wanted to accomplish, but to rest in the sovereignty of God, that he is working all things out for his glory and for the good of his people, all things at all places and all times. And so we can put our head on our pillow and rest in him. Remember Jesus, after a very busy day of ministry, of working, uh, he was worn out and he was in a boat going across the sea and there was a terrible storm and yet he was sleeping in the midst of those difficulties. And so now in this psalm, the theme changes from this vanity or uselessness to the fact of fruitfulness. And the key term here is children, a very familiar passage I'm sure you're familiar with. And uh, in verse 3, it says, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. They are wonderful assets as children. Wonderful assets. Children are a gift from the Lord. It's a reward. And some people mistakenly look at this, especially Couples who are wanting children, who are unable to have children, as a fact that they're being punished. Because we think of a reward as something we receive for good performance. And that is so far from the truth, because the Hebrew word here does not mean that. It means that God, in his grace, has blessed us with children. And it's not something that we work up and we do those kinds of things. I was thinking about children in in our society and culture. And uh, as I've read... Children were a very fundamental part of an agrarian society, a farm society. And remember that that was primarily what the United States of America was up until 1850. And in 1850, what happened then? Industrial Revolution. And suddenly, children became extraneous. I mean, obviously, farm families still had large families and because more children you had, more workers you had on your farm. And those of you who grew up on a farm... Uh, or still growing up on a farm, you understand that. I remember with my dad, he would have me spend every Saturday, we would fix fence and put in new fence and take care of the cattle and stuff, and I used to just hate it. But I remember now that it was for the good of the family. It was a good exercise and learning time. And he was showing me that his children were not extraneous. And I think that's one of the differences we, we face. So wonderful assets are children. Babies are really great, but you probably don't consider them as assets just as of yet, right? They take a lot of work. In fact, one person defined babies this way. Someone has described a baby as a digestive apparatus with a loud noise at one end and no responsibility at the other. And so so those of you in the throes of having babies and rearing children or grandchildren... Uh, you kind of understand that they, we don't really think of them as assets right now. But they are mighty assets. Look at verse 4. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are children of one's youth. Actually, in the Hebrew, children here is the Hebrew term for sons. And in this culture, in this day and age that Solomon was writing in, the sons were the ones who were the warriors, the protectors of the family, of the tribe, of the nation of Israel, and so they were assets, mighty assets to their parents, to their family, to their tribe, and to their community. And uh, they were called the children, so are the children of one's youth, that this arrow, this that's really a warfare term, one that would protect them, would grow up and protect their parents, and they became these assets. 
and blessed assets are children. Verse 5, how blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. In other words, large families. Of course, in agrarian cultures and societies, you would want large families because you would have lots of land to farm and you needed lots of workers to help you, and so the children would do that. And it tells us that when his quiver is full of them, they will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. The gate is a picture of civil discourse and where lawsuits were brought and where difficulties were brought in the community. And so a a man with children who would stand for him and stand up for him and protect him, it was a blessing. They were blessed assets. Just remember that children, as one person said, are a handful before they're a quiverful. And uh, so we remember that also. It does not do any good to build and guard our houses and our cities if there's no future generations to inherit it and keep the family and the city and the nation going. And uh, I might add that even in a church family, we look to the next generations to carry on the principles, the blessings, the values, and the doctrine of the Word of God. And so we continually look down the road and say, okay, what is God, what are you bringing up for us? Blessed assets are these grown children who are arrows who are ones who are fruitful. Among the Jews, it was really unheard of in this day and age, especially in in Solomon's day, that a husband and wife would not want children and that a child could be aborted. Even the pagan nations did that, or they killed them soon after uh, they were born. But uh, a rabbi named Leo Trepp, Trepp wrote about this time, children are a blessing for the Jew. Each child brings a blessing all his own, Our ancestors would say, we rejoice in children because we are a people, a historical people. Children are precious, a heritage from the Lord, and they make a home, a treasury, if you will. And so they are like uh, fruitfulness and like arrows, as the psalmist has said. And so the city gate, they would protect him there in civil matters and then protect him in warfare. And the family would be preserved and invest in the future. And, of course, not everyone is supposed to get married. We know that from the Apostle Paul and from the New Testament. Some don't get married. Some choose uh, single uh, life. Uh, Nor are all married couples able to have children. But as adults, all of us can value children and pray for them to be good examples to them and see that they're protected and cared for and encouraged in their journey of spiritual upbringing and to pray for the parents. So this telos, this ultimate aim, again, from these psalms of ascent is God is wanting and desiring our worship and we go and we follow what the pilgrims did in this journey and our telos, our ultimate aim, our purpose of what we do. Now I am painfully aware that uh, the psalmist here, Solomon, uh, he did not finish well. It's one of my things that I really desire to finish well and I desire all of you to finish well, especially the men And ultimately, the responsibility lies with us, and I'm concerned that we finish well in life. It is disturbing when you go through Scripture. By the way, there are no perfect families in Scripture. Uh, I don't like the term dysfunctional, but every family you look look at through Scripture has some dysfunction in it. And so there's no reason for you to expect your family to be perfect or to be the Hallmark card family, okay? We all have our difficulties and our problems. But when you think about those who fail in Scripture, morally, emotionally, spiritual failure tends to come in the last half of their lives. And, of course, Solomon, the writer of this psalm that God used, the one who is called beloved of God, Jedidiah, he did not finish well. Remember, Solomon did not take the wisdom and the lessons to heart 
contained in this very psalm. His building, both literally and figuratively, became reckless, 1 Kings chapter 9. His kingdom became a ruin in 1 Kings chapter 11. And his marriages, multiple marriages, by the way, remember that, were a disastrous denial of God and idolatry. He joined his pagan wives in idolatry in 1 Kings 11. And so we need to remember that. We need to finish well. What is your telos? What is your aim in life? How do you view your aim and your telos? How will you finish? Of course, the central teaching of this psalm is applicable to both body and spirit. As we turn away from our self-sufficiency and replace it with faith in God that lives out his principles, our activities are not useless, but they can be fruitful and produce the desired result. They are fruitful because God is at work in them and through them. And so it's a cognitive understanding that practicing the presence of God, as one medieval monk said, no matter what you find yourself doing, working in the kitchen, working in the field, going to class, wherever you find yourself, practicing the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, this morning we thank you for your word again. Thank you that we have it in our own heart language. We praise you and thank you that you can teach us through the power of your Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would take my feeble words and, Lord, that just remind us of the text of this psalm and remind us that we all are preoccupied with uh, building houses and all of those things that we are preoccupied with, Lord, and uh, with cultivating a family and all those things. And, Lord, we pray today that you would remind us that you are part of all of this and that we don't want to live a life of vanity, of emptiness, of uselessness, no matter how successful we look in other areas, Lord, that you would be honored and glorified in it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.